Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, September 18th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible. And Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. You just go to audible.com slash inquiringminds and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds. And get started today. Last week, we had a difficult discussion about the psychology of hate. So this week, we thought we'd bring a little zen into your life. So there's been a recent resurgence or emergence of science around meditation and Zen practices. And in fact, there is one author whose work I really respect, whose previous books, The Evolution of God and The Moral Animal, have won many prizes and changed many minds. Robert Wright recently wrote a book, Why Buddhism is True. That's a strong statement. <laughs> it certainly is. And he, he does have a couple of caveats right up front about he doesn't he's not going to touch on sort of ideas in Buddhism about reincarnation and the afterlife and so forth, but rather just about the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment, and whether it can truly bring the things that it suggests it can like, can you actually reach a state of nirvana? If you live a life uh, according to Buddhist principles? Uh is, are we heading to the point where nirvana can be quantified scientifically? Well, no. But perhaps if we can all agree that it would be a happy state to be in. Sure. Except Kurt Cobain. Yeah. I think everyone <laughs> else can agree that nirvana is a happy state to be in. So I was really surprised uh, when this book came across my desk. And I was a little bit skeptical. And I actually had my husband read it first. And he told me, oh, you have to read this. It's really good. And there's like markings and highlighted passages that he handed off to me in the book. Um, and he was totally right. There are definitely a lot of things that made me think and sort of say, hmm, when I read this book. So I was really excited to interview Bob Wright. I'm I'm going to maintain a healthy skepticism, let's just say. <laughs> okay, so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Robert Wright. 
This episode is sponsored by Audible. At Inquiring Minds, we love Audible because membership includes a free audiobook every month and 30% off all regularly priced audiobooks. And there are free apps for iPhone, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. And unlike a streaming or a rental service, with Audible, you actually own your own books. So you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your phone. Also, there's a great listen guarantee. Don't like the book you downloaded? Swap it out. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, including audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Not sure which book to choose? Well, you can listen to Robert Wright's Why Buddhism is True on audible.com. So get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Robert Wright. Well, thank you for having me. I have to tell you that your previous book, The Evolution of God, had a huge influence on me. It was the first time that I had considered that many different religions still follow a similar trajectory in terms of the conception of God. And for the first time, I thought maybe we can evaluate religious belief in a scientific way. Wow. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, so... Uh, And then I was, so of course, given that you had this kind of very, I don't want to say sterile, but maybe clinical way of of observing religion, I was- I I do prefer clinical. Could we scratch (laughs) sterile and call it, in fact, if you give me a second, I can probably think up uh, something even better. Uh, Cute? How's that? Well, we'll compromise clinical. Okay. Much, much better. But you can imagine my surprise uh, when your book, Why Buddhism is True, came across my desk. It was not something that I would have expected uh, from the same person who wrote The Evolution of God. So let's start oh, I'm, with... I'm sure you'll find it's, it's suitably <laughs> sterile if you, if you actually take a look. Oh, you're not going to let that go, huh? <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid our relationship uh, will never recover from this. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about what makes you, what, what made you sort of turn to Buddhism as now, you know, and, and calling it true? Well, uh, I mean, first, by true, what I mainly mean is, you know, Buddhism makes kind of an amazing claim, which is that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer, in other words, the reason we misbehave, uh, is that we don't see the world clearly. Uh, and I say that's an amazing claim because, it, you know, it's kind of like, Nice if true, right? Because at least you can kill three birds with one stone, you know, by by pursuing the truth, by trying to get a clearer view of the world, you become happier and you become a better person. And uh, I'm persuaded that that's basically true. Uh, And moreover, if you if you look more closely at what Buddhism means by not seeing the world clearly, uh, which is to say you have major illusions about yourself. Uh, And you have significant misperceptions about the world out there, including certainly including other people. I think those things uh, are also true. Uh, You know, I should say I'm talking about the kind of philosophical and naturalistic and you might say secular part of Buddhism. I'm not getting into reincarnation or anything like that. But if you look at the philosophical claims and their, you might say, spiritual implications, you might say therapeutic implications, since, since you know, it makes you happier, um, at least that's the claim. Uh, I, I stand behind them, and I argue that uh, 
kind of modern psychology, in particular evolutionary psychology, uh, helps corroborate the Buddhist worldview. Yeah. So, of course, the most for me, the most intriguing part of that is, well, what what do you what is truth? Uh, since, of course, you know, as a scientist, that's something that we're constantly in search of uh, some kind of universal truth. But we need to back up, I think, before we even get there to sort of get a sense of uh, this, this idea that we don't perceive the world or, or we don't conceptualize of the world accurately, which, of course, is very well documented in psychology and neuroscience. So, Let's start there. What kinds of illusions uh, or sort of ways in which we experience the world that aren't accurate or true uh, does Buddhism predict? Well, uh, one of the more famously radical claims of Buddhism is the so-called not-self doctrine, the idea that yourself doesn't exist. Now, that's been interpreted in various ways. Um but certainly, if you take it to mean that you are kind of deluded in thinking that there's this conscious you that is running the show, that is, you know, doing all the deeds and thinking all the thoughts, like a CEO of your being is calling the shots. Um, I, I think psychology really, really considerably substantiates this idea that we tend to overestimate the extent to which we, the conscious I, uh, the extent to which we are kind of in control and, and are doing things. And, you know, uh, there are ideas from evolutionary psychology about why, why natural selection would have designed us to think, to be deluded in this way. But, but the main thing I would say is that there is a fair amount uh, of evidence that that we over overstate the significance of this kind of conscious CEO self. So that's one thing. That's one sense in which I would defend uh, the not self doctrine. There are other other senses as well. It's a very uh, rich and important idea, and it has moral consequences according to to Buddhism. Because if you actually meditatively apprehend not self. You know, become convinced of the, the truth of not self, not through logical argumentation alone, but but through actual experiential apprehension. It is said that that makes you uh, a, a better person. So selflessness in this kind of like metaphysical sense leads to selflessness in the moral sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a lot to chew. So I just want to kind of back up for a second. And, you know, you make the point really well in your book that you're not calling natural selection a designer. So, um, you know, because that's a that's actually a, a, a sort of a pitfall of a lot of people who quote evolution, evolutionary psychology work um, is this idea that, you know, we were driven towards one particular way of being uh, by some kind of uh, designer with a design in mind. So can we just unpack that, that, you know, really, you know, natural selection is a, is a chaotic and random process to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, it is the raw material that natural selection works on is effectively for our purposes random. But of course, the selective process uh, generates coherence, right? You 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 wind up with these uh, organisms that function very well. And one of the things about natural selection, uh, and this kind of hit home when I wrote a book about evolutionary psychology called The Moral Animal, and I emphasized it a little in that, is, is that natural selection, I mean, if we could just personify it for the sake of talking about it, you know, uh, 
it doesn't care whether we are happy and it doesn't care whether we see the world clearly. I mean, it doesn't ultimately care. I mean, ultimately, natural selection's bottom line is getting genes into the next generation. If suffering from a delusion or being unhappy will help you get genes into the next generation, then natural selection will favor those forms of delusion and unhappiness. And so now in many ways, of course, we see the world quite clearly. And of course, sometimes we are happy. But this is the fact that natural selection is willing, has been willing over time to sacrifice happiness and clarity of vision to genetic proliferation is is one thing that I think makes this evolutionary worldview mesh very well with Buddhism. And, you know, just to take a some some simple everyday examples of uh, kind of delusion, those those can include just like anxiety that's kind of out of control where you're worrying about things that are actually not very likely to happen. You know, na natural selection uh, favors erring on the side of caution with things like fear and anxiety. And then, of course, on top of that, we're living in an environment very different from the one we were designed for. So we have all kinds of modern anxieties and so on. Um, but then another another thing along these same lines is that happiness is designed to evaporate, right? I mean, natural selection doesn't want you to be enduringly contented uh, if you eat food or have sex or do any of the other things that are conducive to survival and replication. It wants you to pretty quickly get restless and want to do more, you know, have more food, have more sex, whatever. So uh, this fleetingness of pleasure, uh, you know, but both of these things, the fact that our feelings may mislead us and the fleetingness of pleasure are things that are very much a part of Buddhism's diagnosis of the human predicament. And then, then Buddhism has a whole program, including meditation, including mindfulness meditation for kind of confronting this, these, this problem and dealing with it. It's so interesting to me because in some ways it's that's the one fundamental difference between well, I mean, there's a lot of differences between Buddhism and many of the other religions that I'm familiar with, where, you know, the kind of goal ultimately is to be happy, whether it's in heaven or in some kind of afterlife. Like there's this sense that at some point, all of your suffering will be rewarded with eternal happiness. And uh, in Buddhism, that doesn't seem, I mean, unless, unless you go sort of the reincarnation root, um, that doesn't seem to be a central tenet, which in some ways makes it harder, I think, for a lot of people to accept and get behind because it's very, you know, nice to think that at some point your suffering is going to go away and you're going to be in this internal state of bliss. And yet it jives so well with, you know, natural selection. And, and you know, I, I found it really compelling your argument that there is, you know, there there is diminishing returns to being happy all the time from the perspective of propagating your genes. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right that religious Buddhism offers one kind of uh, reward for kind of good behavior, which is a chance of a more favorable uh, rebirth. Uh, there's that. And I don't, you know, that's not what my book is about. But it is true that even if you put that aside, there is in Buddhism, uh, however severe the diagnosis, however deeply embedded suffering is said to be in the human predicament by Buddhist doctrine, there is the promise to, in principle, realizing the, the promise of realizing uh, bliss. I mean, that's what awakening slash nirvana would be if you if you pursued Buddhist discipline so rigorously that you cross this threshold, it is said that that would be a very blissful state. And 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 there are some people who who you can argue about whether they're enlightened, but they've certainly seem uh, 
happier than you and well, I can't speak for you, happier than me on a, on a regular basis. And they have done it through meditation. Now, one thing I try to emphasize in the book is that you shouldn't think of this as a dichotomy, like you meditate for five years and then finally, maybe you'll cross this threshold and find true awakening. Uh, I think it's a more incremental path. And of course, there are many people who can attest that mindfulness meditation in particular has made them somewhat happier. And I, I think that's the case. So, I, I mean, I think there is some relief from suffering as a practical matter offered by Buddhism. And that's a lot of what my book is about. But what I think is interesting is that, that it, that's actually continuous with, it's of a piece with the larger distant hope of enlightenment. Okay. And what I mean that is that by that is that if you do mindfulness meditation and get relief from some suffering and get a little happier, that does, I think, involve seeing the world a little more clearly. It, it can even involve, you know, not full on enlightenment, maybe, but you're seeing things more clearly. And even this elusive not self concept, I think you can get a taste of through a fairly modest practice, which is to say, you say you've got some anxiety, you feel it, you experience it, you don't run away from it, you, you're willing to kind of experience it. And by doing that, by indulging it in a sense, you get a little crit critical distance from it. And suddenly it seems like it's not necessarily part of you. So it's like a part of you that you have disowned. So something you, you, you had previously considered part of yourself no longer seems like part of yourself. And, and I think that is a kind of modest progress toward what Buddhists think of as like the full on insight of not self. So if I can paraphrase a little bit and, you know, please jump in and correct me as I'm sure I will get it, get it wrong. But part of the idea is that modern neuroscience now has shown that we don't have a single conception of self that drives the majority of our behavior. Instead, there's lots of networks and lots of processes and lots of things happening outside of our consciousness that affect our behavior in ways that we're not even aware of. And then maybe we have this kind of higher level interpreter uh, that you know, somehow we pull together into a conception of self that gives us the illusion that we are, in fact, in, in control. And one of your arguments is that in the tenets of Buddhism, this is already a central idea and that it's been around for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, you know, Buddhism doesn't ex speak exactly the language of modern science. I mean, I'm particularly partial to a kind of a version of what you just said, which is called the modular model of the mind, the idea that there are these kind of specialized networks in your mind and, and at different times, different networks with different functions are in charge. Um, and of course, Buddhism doesn't get into that. But, but yes, this is very consistent with a lot of Buddhist thought. And it's consistent with things that you hear at meditation retreats. I've been to a number of these. Um, I'm, I'm like not a naturally good meditator, so I had to go to a week-long retreat before I even got interested in meditation. Um, and, you know, teachers will say things like, thoughts think themselves. And that is a meditative apprehension. In other words, if you calm your mind enough to observe the contents of your mind carefully, it will start to seem as if thoughts are just kind of appearing. It's, it's, it's not like you, you, the conscious, you thought them. It's more like they're just kind of entering consciousness from somewhere and moving on and then disappearing. And that, it's a very Buddhist idea. And it's a, an idea very consistent with this kind of modular model of the mind, the idea that 
the thoughts are in a sense injected into your consciousness by this subconscious information processing system that's specialized and that what we habitually do is we take ownership of the thoughts and we think, yeah, I thought that thought. But actually, by the time you see the thought, you know, the, the work is done. I mean, you, you, know, you, you own it and then you are willing to defend it, but it didn't really emanate from the conscious you. So there's another part, too, of uh, Buddhist philosophy that seems to get things right uh, in, in a sort of even in a modern neuroscience way, which is the sense that, you know, a lot of what we experience or what we perceive is false. Uh, and so I wanted to delve a little bit more deeply in that, into that. Um, and in particular, I loved your analogy of the powdered sugar donuts, um, because I'm very fond of them myself. Uh, <laughs> and my husband never understands why it is so difficult for me uh, to not have the powdered how sugar could you, donut. <laughs> how could you marry a person who is that <laughs> uncomprehending? I mean, that, that is just like essence of pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm like, that's it's the perfect example of something that you can continue to eat a lot of. And yet it's like diminishing returns in terms of your satisfaction. But the thing that I loved is that you pointed out that, you know, the first time you eat a powdered sugar donut, it just blows your mind. It's awesome. But the second time that you eat it, you actually, you know, love the anticipation phase more. And then once you actually eat it, it's much less exciting. <laughs> Right. And there were scientific studies of what's going on in monkeys' brains when they drop fruit juice on their tongues, which uh, are kind of show something very consistent with this, which is that initially the dopamine, which is associated with reward and, and, and uh, motivation and tends to be correlated with pleasure, um, the dopamine shows up initially after the fruit juice, but increasingly more of the, the dopamine comes when they anticipate the fruit juice and less of it comes upon getting the fruit juice. And that may be describing what's going on uh, mechanically when what you just said happens. But it's certainly true. And, and this this is, a, you know, I think it's a it's a subtle illusion, but I think it's an illusion that when we anticipate all kinds of things, you know, not just uh, how much joy we're going to get out of the donut, but how lasting uh, the gratification will be from some promotion we've worked so hard for, right? Or various other things, or how much uh, joy uh, some new purchase is going to bring. I, I think we tend to overestimate how long this stuff is going to last. And that makes sense as something that natural selection would build into us as a motivational device. And it's a subtle illusion, but <clears throat> I, I do think it's an illusion. And it's it's pretty central to to Buddhism, the fact that pleasures are very ephemeral and fleeting and that we don't really reckon with that fact uh, all that thoroughly by nature. So that that gets us then to other kinds of feelings that also um, may not be so fleeting. We alluded to it earlier in the conversation, you know, that you sort of in one environment, the fear of, say, a particular uh, rattlesnake or even, you know, speaking in front of a large group of people uh, has sort of immediate consequences potentially on gene propagation. But nowadays in a different environment, you know, those consequences are not so immediate. Uh, and yet the fears and the anxiety can become debilitating. Well, well, so, yeah. So first of all, even in the environment we're designed for, natural selection it doesn't care if we really necessarily see things clearly. So if you're if you're if you're in a snake infested area and every time you hear some sound at your feet, you look down and briefly think you imagine a snake, that's almost always a false positive 
that's kind of built in because you're supposed to err on the side of caution if it's like a lethal threat. So so a lot of fear that turns out to be unwarranted is is in a sense built into us. But it gets worse because in a modern environment, there are whole there are things we're not even designed for. And speaking in front of a whole bunch of people that we don't know is a good example. Uh, we are designed to care what people think of us. But in, during evolution, in a kind of a hunter-gatherer milieu, you wouldn't very often find you would you know pretty much never find yourself speaking to a bunch of people you've never met, and that's why I think that is so terrifying. You take what is a natural kind of anxiety, just what people think of you, and you amp it up by putting you in front of a bunch of people you don't even know. Sometimes with you know stakes you think of as high, and and so on. So yeah, we're 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 um, we're not necessarily built to always. Um, see things clearly. So some of our fears and anxieties are going to be unwarranted anyway. And then the modern environment uh, makes things worse. And I think that's one reason you're seeing so much interest in mindfulness meditation, because it's a very good technique for dealing with feelings in particular uh, that are problematic. It's a way of getting a vantage point on them that, uh, that can be liberating, that can loosen their grip on you. So let's talk about that, because uh, I have to say that I've always, you know, the, the idea of a silent retreat for like a week is probably the most terrifying thing I can ever imagine. <laughs> and, you know, reading your experiences with it, that, you know, the first, uh, you know, couple days or whatever that you you felt like you were failing at it. I, I mean, I'm sure I would be you and I don't know that I would even succeed uh, after I probably just go home uh, <laughs> rather than powering through it. Uh, so for people like me who can't imagine sort of just being alone with our thoughts uh, and, and you know, having no other outlet, uh, what is it? What does it do? What happens like when you become successful at it? Um, well, it was very hard. <clears throat> excuse me. It was very hard for me because, as I said, I'm not a natural meditator. I don't have a good attention span. It finally just kind of clicked. I was having trouble focusing on my breaths at all. And finally, I mean, the first big moment was when I had kind of I had had too much coffee and I had this kind of like jittery clenched jaw feeling that didn't feel good at all. And I just suddenly it was there and I didn't like it. I wanted it to go away. And suddenly I just started watching it kind of and observing it. And suddenly it just seemed like it wasn't part of me. I guess that was my big breakthrough. I will say as far as your your apprehension, I have recommended to maybe nine, 10 people they go on these. They are all satisfied customers. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no hard parts. There are. I think of a meditation retreat as like extreme sports for the mind, where in my experience, it's mainly good. But, you know, you really can reckon it's, it's a very strange environment. Uh, you can have some very frustrating times. You can look deep into your own soul and so on. Uh, but when I came out of my first meditation retreat, I was like, not just blissed out, but I was like, suddenly I had become the kind of person, you know, that if everyone were like me, there would be no wars. And I assure you, I'm not like that normally. I'm <laughs> I'm normally the kind of person, like if everyone were like me, there would be wars. And, and there are. Um, but uh, it's because it's not just that you feel better, but you're so much like less, uh, less obedient to to kind of reflexive judgments of people that we normally make on the basis of very little evidence, less reactive in the sense of, you know, taking offense at things or, you know, you just have a more kind of benign uh, view of the world, in including people. And I actually do think uh, that 
leave aside effects that dramatic, which tend to only happen on retreat, or if you're going to be really rigorous about your meditation and do it for hours a day, I think leaving all that aside, if everyone meditated for just half an hour a day, 25 minutes, I, I think it would have, there would be less political polarization in America, less fake news would be spread because people would be just a little less reflexive in sharing news that they want to be true, you know, because it, it's unflattering toward their enemies or it's good for their team. Um, so I, I, I'm really a believer uh, in the idea that mindfulness meditation could help combat the psychology of tribalism that seems to have gotten kind of out of control lately in our environment, not, not just through political polarization, but, you know, sectarian conflict, national tensions and uh, uh, but certainly in America in the form of intense kind of ideological tribalism. So I get that that's the selling point. But what do you think the mechanism is? How, how does it work in your mind? Yeah. Well, I, I think you, the first thing is to realize that the line between feeling and cognition, but, you know, between affect and cognition, between feeling and thoughts is not as fine as we think. And you come to see that through meditation, or it's not, it's not as, it's not as clear as we think. I mean, uh, the barrier between those two, it's not like you have like a cognitive part of your brain and then an emotional part of your brain. The two are intertwined, uh, in, in the brain and, and in actual behavior, like if, uh, if you pay attention to, you know, we, we've probably all retweeted something or shared something on Facebook, which in retrospect was not reliable. We were trusting someone. We didn't go read the thing ourselves. We didn't read all of it. And if you look at what's happening when you do that, I mean, that seems like a cognitive act, choosing to retweet or share. But if you pay attention to what's happening, it's a feeling that draws you into doing that quickly without reflection. It's because you like that news. You, you, your ideological affiliation or something else gives you an affection, a feeling, a good feeling about what you're sharing that makes you share it. And I, I'm not saying that that goes awry most of the time, but I think meditation makes you more, mindfulness meditation makes you more conscious of how feelings influence your thoughts and behavior in everyday life, which can give you the choice of whether or not to follow them. And I think that's why uh, if you meditate a fair amount, at least, you will spread less fake news and you'll, you know, you will, you'll have fewer regrettable, you'll send fewer regrettable emails, fewer regrettable, you'll have fewer regrettable retweets and so on. Um, but, but it, it's the observation that mindfulness meditation permits, the careful observation of your mind that when you carry it off the meditation cushion and into everyday life allows you to see how subtly feelings influence thoughts and behavior. So it reminds me a little bit of like the only experience that I can that I've had that I think is maybe marginally close to that, which is, you know, being in a lot of pain and then suddenly getting morphine. And, you know, you still feel the pain, but you just don't care. <laughs> um, is that is that ultimately kind of the goal of of this kind of mindfulness meditation is that you still feel the feelings, you still have the thoughts, but somehow you're not affected by them in the same way. They don't drive as much of your behavior. There can be that. I mean, certainly, and the more dramatic examples for me tend to come either on retreat or in the wake of a retreat when I've still got some, you know, 
some of the retreat buzz in me. But um, I certainly have had cases where I had acute anxiety and just like I'm, I'm trying to get to sleep or something. I sit up, meditate, and then the anxiety, it's, it's there, but suddenly I'm observing it as if it were a piece of modern sculpture or something in, in a museum. And then after that, it tends to disappear once it no longer has its grip on you. So that can happen. And, and another, I mean, to, to carry the morphine comparison further, actual pain. Um, there's a thing I recount in the book about how I developed an abscess tooth, what turned out to be an abscess tooth while on retreat. Any kind of liquid in my, that, 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 you know, that, that got to the tooth was acutely painful. So I thought as an experiment, I mean, when you're on retreat, you're just getting to greater meditative depths than you are in everyday uh, practice. And so I thought, well, let's, I'm going to meditate for half an hour in my room and then just bathe the tooth in liquid. And it really, I'm not going to say there was no discomfort involved, but it was kind of like it vacillated between going, uh, yeah, that's painful and going, whoa, that's amazing. It's like, you know, you're like, you're just like observing this wet because pain's dramatic. And it's like, you're observing this wave and you're going, whoa, that's really powerful looking. You know, it's like, it was, uh, it was definitely less painful than usual. Um, and there are people who use meditation to treat, uh, acute pain. It, again, it's not something that you're going to get a lot of mileage on if you're meditating 15 minutes a day, but people who have acute pain problems uh, might find it worthwhile to meditate an hour a day or more, and it can definitely uh, have an impact. So there's been a huge interest now in sort of understanding the brain basis of mindfulness meditation. Um, is there anything that you've taken from that literature that you feel you know is really compelling or somehow leads us forward? I don't. I don't emphasize brain scans as much in the book as a lot of kind of science and meditation books do because, well, for two reasons. Uh, one is I wanted to focus on what understanding evolution and the way evolution shaped the mind, just just our, our, our understanding of that, our kind of uh, theoretical and evidentiary understanding of that, how that helps recontextualize meditation and, and the, these radical claims that Buddhism makes. So it was a little more uh, of an evolutionary psychology than than a than a kind of uh, you know neuroscience book. That said, I I do cover some of the brain scan studies that I think are most important, and and one interesting one certainly is the studies that show what is called the default mode network getting quiet when people start succeeding at meditating as they sink into a meditative state, and the default mode network is this, it's what your mind is doing when your mind is wandering. When you're not focused on some task, you're not like uh, crashing to meet a deadline, you're not reading an engrossing novel, you're not playing a sport, your mind is just wandering from thing to thing. And uh, it's interesting that that subsides and really subsides like very reliably and quickly with really adept meditators. Um, it's I mean, I also talked about the default mode network in terms of this modular view of the mind I mentioned earlier, because I think that's actually what's going on is like when you're when your mind is wandering again, we say my mind is wandering as if your mind is deciding where to go. I don't really think that's what's going on. I think these different modules are competing for your attention. That, and that's a largely at a subconscious level. And the one that succeeds is in some sense the most powerful grabs your mind. And, and, and I think that's what's happening with mind wandering. But in any event, uh, this is the first challenge in meditation. 
is to sit down and find something to focus on that will stop the mind wandering. And then if it's mindfulness meditation, you're going to use the ensuing equilibrium to just pay attention to things closely. Could be sounds, could be things out there in the environment, could be bodily sensations. But I think like feelings and thoughts are particularly important things to perceive clearly, uh, you know, both in terms of um, making yourself happier uh, and in terms of getting a clearer fix of the on the way your mind is actually working. So we just have a couple minutes left. And so I want to circle back to this idea that we raised at the very beginning, that Buddhism is true in some, you know, in, in some sense. So why is it if, if Buddhism has been around for thousands of years, and it really seems to be very close to uh, how we understand in, in many ways our own uh, brains these days, you know, why isn't it more popular? And, and sort of what is that truth uh, that you feel Buddhism captures that other religions and other ways of thinking perhaps do not? Um, well, it is getting more popular. Certainly mindfulness meditation isn't it? granted. Most of the people who do mindfulness meditation don't spend a lot of time uh, wading through arcane Buddhist doctrine. Um, but uh, there is something happening here. As for the truth, I mean, I would say, again, the key one is we suffer and make other people suffer because we don't see the world clearly. By clarifying our vision, we can become happier and better. That's essential. But moreover, if you look at the what the delusions are at a more fine-grained level, we've talked a little about the, the, the idea that the self isn't what we think it is. And, and uh, I certainly get into that in the book. There's another thing we don't have time to get into probably. It's called emptiness. It's a very misleading name for a doctrine. The point is just that we attribute kinds of essence to things and to people that are not really there. And this becomes very consequential uh, when you like start moving toward a war. And people are people who want the war are trying to frame the leader of the war, country they want to invade as the most evil person possible. And use, you know, often they are kind of bad. But uh, and the reason the reason they want to do that is because that will shape the essence you see in the person. And that in turn will trigger cognitive biases that, uh, for reasons we probably don't have time to get into, uh, are more likely to get you into a war. So anyway, not self and emptiness are the two fundamental Buddhist doctrines that, as crazy as they may sound in some contexts, I think have uh, a lot to be said for them. And if, if any of our listeners are, are much like you and me, who started out, I mean, with uh, pretty, pretty poor meditation skills, um, what would you recommend would be a good starting point for someone who wants to delve a little bit more deeply into mindfulness meditation? I guess I'm not allowed to say read my book. <laughs> well, that's a starting yeah. point. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but that doesn't um, teach you how to meditate. No, actually, there, there are, <laughs> leaving that aside, there are good uh, starter books, uh, one is called Mindfulness in Plain English, which is a uh, well-known, a well-known book. Uh, there are now meditation apps. Uh, uh, Head Headspace is famous. There's also an app called Ten Percent Happier, based on you know the book by uh, Dan Harris that was such a bestseller about meditation a couple of years ago. Uh, that's gotten very good reviews. Um, I would say, as 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 radical as it may sound to people, to like go on a meditation retreat. If you have a place that's recommended by people you trust, and and my own preference is for the the mindfulness tradition, which is closely associated with something called vipassana meditation, uh, and it, either rubric might might be the one you see at any 
depending on the, the way they're billing it. But those two things are to some extent the same. Um, I would recommend that because I think it's the one where you spend the most time looking at your own uh, mind, which I think is a very fruitful path. Um, and uh, I would say, hey, life is short. You know, it sounds crazy. It's only a week. You probably won't die. And uh, it almost everyone I know who does it uh, likes it, although it is it is not without perils, I admit. Well, I want to remind our listeners that Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment, and Enlightenment is now available at booksellers everywhere. Robert Wright, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. That was a lot of fun. So one of the things that I loved about the book and that I really enjoyed talking to him during the interview about is this notion of the self and how so many ways in which we sort of have a conscious experience of the world is delusional. I And I think people will hear that word delusional and have a certain sort of, you know, connotation about what that means. He means it slightly differently, to be clear, like not delusional in the sense that you know, I know Star Wars to be the greatest movie of all time. Like, not one of those delusions. <laughs> like, we're we're talking about it in a, a in a way that we sort of are tricking ourselves. If yeah, you know. like for example, if I buy this car that I've been wanting to buy for so long, it's going to bring me a huge amount of happiness. And you know, that is actually incorrect because over time, that happiness is quickly going to dissipate, and it's actually going to bring me less joy than I would have expected it to. Because we're not taking a hard look at some of the core items that are underneath that, that sort of purchase that... Yeah, and also that we overestimate sort of how much joy things bring to us, and we underestimate how quickly cravings and temptations can subside. I mean, when we're in the midst of having a craving or a temptation, it seems as though unless I get this thing, you know, unless I have this piece of chocolate or this glass of wine or whatever it is, or this donut, uh, we talked about donuts a lot, uh, <laughs> then a lot. I, yeah, I, I cannot... I will not be satisfied, that I will be left empty. And, you know, the point that he makes is like, look, 15 minutes later, when you're no longer thinking about that donut, if you haven't eaten it, or if you have eaten it, it doesn't matter, right? Because if you've eaten it, that joy, pleasure has already dissipated, it's gone away. And if you haven't eaten it, well, you're off doing the next thing, and that craving has gone away. I can see that manner of thinking and that argument applying to a lot of different areas, anxiety, depression, even greed, and having a really significant output. But let me take a, a different take. I, I have this perception of like the Zen state of mind, and that it is passionless in a way, that is sort of devoid of of sort of the ups and downs that that make life exciting and and worth living because things sort of pass through you um, instead of riding with the the current. So while I appreciate where he's coming from and the and the science that he references is is it also just not very human? I mean, you know, I don't know if I, if if I want to label it as human or not, but I I totally see where you're coming from, and I think it's a great point that for me one of the amazing parts of life is the emotional roller coaster. And if I just become too zen about everything, am I going to not feel the same amount of the sort of 
passionate experiences. Now, you could argue that mindfulness meditation in particular is based upon a premise of loving kindness, you know, that you feel compassion, you feel love, so that maybe like the best emotion that you can feel, which, you know, is arguably love, is one that you feel all the time. But I agree with you that I often feel sort of deadened inside and it is even is a hallmark of depression um, when you stop feeling other strong emotions. So I have to ask a sort of long term question. This is a topic so many philosophers and so many scientists explore through through popular books. It's not going away. Uh, It's been happening for 30 years. Um, Is this the domain of science to explore? Does it have something to say? Are you convinced uh, by Robert's arguments that science will have an important component to this discussion? Well, if science includes philosophy, then yes. I don't think it does. Is that a hedge? Yeah, (laughs) I think think science and philosophy are two different things. I think it's an important distinction that they're definitely not the same. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there are certain things that uh, science can aid in terms of understanding where philosophy is concerned. Uh, But I agree with you that I think there are also going to be some aspects of this kind of work that are remain within the realm of philosophy, uh, and that science will have a harder time speaking to. Um, I still think that the philosophy of Buddhism is one that is worth uh, setting up some questions that science can answer. And that, you know, if we're all about the pursuit of happiness, ultimately, uh, and we also are going to be faced with some major problems in the world, including overpopulation and resource depletion, uh, then maybe adopting a more Zen attitude, if the science shows that it does actually help people, might not be a bad direction forward. Okay, so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Stefan Meyer Ewald, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Shen, John Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. And very soon, if you are one of our Patreon supporters, you'll be able to have exclusive looks at our video series, Signs in Progress. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Audible, and Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash inquiringminds and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free, like Robert Wright's Why Buddhism is True, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.